Evidence and Answers. Evolutionists assume that all animals evolved from a common ancestor. Therefore, scientists expected the genetic sequencing of animals to be similar. Modern DNA sequencing technology has enabled scientists today to see the full genetic diversity of life on this planet. And what they have discovered has baffled scientists. The genetic diversity among the animal species is vastly greater than they could have ever imagined. No current theory of evolution can account for the great genetic diversity in all of the species of animals and plants. Is there another explanation for the genetic diversity of life? Could intelligent design, perhaps, provide a better explanation? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today's message comes from this year's Hawaii Apologetics Conference. Our theme this year was Science and Christianity enemies or allies. And one of our featured speakers was Dr. Paul Nelson, who spoke on the topic, Could Evolution Build the Animals? Let's join Paul Nelson now as he explains how recent discoveries in genetics pose challenges for the evolutionists and point to an intelligent creator. DNA sequencing technology, which did not exist when I was a student, but now is incredibly cheap and fast. In fact, high schools here in Honolulu within the next few years will have their own DNA sequencers because they'll be so inexpensive and it will be a high school project for a biology class to sequence the DNA of some species that's never been sequenced before. That's how inexpensive it's become. In any case, this technology for the first time has enabled biologists to see the full genetic diversity of life on this planet in a way that really for hundreds of years really the whole history of humanity, we've never known. And what they've discovered is that the genetic dictionary of life, the number of unique words that there are in different species, is vastly greater than anyone realized. It's enormously large. If anyone is curious about this, come and talk to me at the break or afterwards, and I'll tell you about some interesting results from ants from six different species of ants that are absolutely mind-blowing. In any case, no current theory of evolution can account for this genetic diversity from a single common ancestor. There are just far too many unique genes to make sense with respect to Darwin's tree. But it's not a problem for intelligent design. Because intelligent design, that is causation by a mind. You have a mind. You bring about effects, like writing a note to your spouse, or you bump someone's car in a parking lot and you leave a note in their door, that no natural process can bring about. So intelligent design has the explanatory power as a theory to account for the genetic diversity that we see. All right, it's going to be probably more biology than you ever expected to hear in a church, <laughs> but... You know, God is in the details. He made it. It's interesting and worthwhile. And the question that we're going to ask tonight is, could evolution, and by that I mean unguided Darwinian evolution, could that have built the animals? That's the question we're going to ask tonight. So the theory that I'll be looking at, you saw this slide last night, is this one right here. The claim that the process of natural selection, which Darwin laid out in his great work, The Origin of Species, that that was the 
cause responsible for hummingbirds and blue whales and all the wonderful fish you see here when you go snorkeling. That theory is widely accepted by modern biology, but we're going to critique it tonight. Let me just tell you first, why does this matter? In particular, why does it matter to Christians? It matters because people like Richard Dawkins will tell you natural selection explains something in the natural world, namely the beauty and complexity of organisms that used to be credited to God. It used to be the view, in early modern science this was widely held by people like Isaac Newton, that biology gave clear evidence of a creator. And what Dawkins is telling you, and he tells this to audiences all over the world, standing room only audiences, natural selection rather than a divine creator explains this diversity. So we're going to challenge that tonight, and we'll use the principle that we used last night, which is testing. We're going to test the claim that natural selection can actually do what Dawkins claims. And to, to do that, it's from 1 Thessalonians, it's a wonderful principle that every scientist should keep in mind, not to mention Christians in general, is we're going to dig deep into biology and look at the evidence, in particular how animals are built during development, and we'll ask, can natural selection build that? So let's look at the kind of puzzle, biological example, that Dawkins says natural selection explains. And that's the origin of animal body plans. Now what's a body plan? A body plan is the basic architecture of an animal. So here's one. It's a little worm. You can get these, if you've got a compost heap in your backyard where you're, you, know, you put vegetable scraps and you let the bacteria work away and it forms a nice mulch and you put that in your garden, if you have a compost heap, you have these worms. They're very, very small, only about a millimeter and a half long. They only have about a thousand cells in the adult, but they're very well understood today by modern biology because their complete DNA sequence has been mapped. You'll be interested to know they have almost as many genes as you do. <laughs> I mean, you're here hearing a talk tonight. They're out there in the soil happily consuming bacteria, but... They have about 19,000 genes, and our current count for Homo sapiens, for our species, is about 22,000. So you're not that much more advanced <laughs> from the genetic coding respect than these guys. Anyway, they're fascinating creatures, but notice their form. This kind of elegant, tapering little roundworm. Compare that to this. This is uh, Drosophila, the fruit fly. Actually, here on Hawaii, there's an incredible diversity of Drosophila species of all different kinds. My wife and I last summer had some overripe bananas and we had a Drosophila infestation in our kitchen. I hope this hasn't happened to you, but they're really small. They're beautiful. They have brilliant red eyes and they kind of buzz around. And I liked it. I mean, I, I love Drosophila. My wife said, <laughs> you know, would you please go to the hardware store and get some flypaper? So <laughs> but notice the form. The architecture of the fly is different than that of the worm. And the purple sea urchin, which flourishes along the Pacific coast, they, these guys live a long time. They're very beautiful when you see them in a tidal pool. Those architectures, those basic forms are not the same. And it's not easy to interconvert them. So the question is, could natural selection have built those differences? All right, so if we're going to ask that question, we need to understand natural selection itself. Now let me tell you something that's very important and I hope you will take away from the talk tonight. 
I am not denying the reality of natural selection. It's a real process. I'll give you an example from my own life. When my wife was in training, her specialty training at Harvard for pediatric gastroenterology to make extra money, we were a young couple about to have kids, she moonlighted as a general pediatrician in a clinic. And at that time, the American Pediatrics Association published a poster that they wanted doctors to put up on the wall in the waiting room. And the poster told parents, don't expect to go home today with an antibiotic. If your child has a mild infection, let's say they've got a fever of about 100, 101, it's probably going to clear up on its own. And the problem is human beings abuse antibiotics. This has never happened to you, but it has happened to me. You get a prescription for 10 days. You take the antibiotic until the symptoms go away. Right, so your fever drops off, you feel better. It's kind of a pain to take a drug twice a day, so you just leave the rest of the medicine in the cabinet in the bathroom. You don't take the full 10 days. Let's say you do five or six. The problem is that antibiotic will now be less effective against those bacteria the next time they see it because bacteria have methods of exchanging genetic information horizontally, like passing off a gene to their neighbor here. Here's a resistance plasmid. Here's a, a nice little piece of DNA that you can use to defeat that antibiotic. And they go right around the antibiotics that we come up with to the point that the last place you want to be sick is a hospital <laughs> because there, there's all kinds of horizontal transfer of genetic information going on among bacteria. And there are some strains of bacteria that resist everything. No matter what you throw at them, they've got a way to get around it. And in the race between bacteria and us, bacteria are winning. It's really scary because we can't come up with antibiotics fast enough to defeat the bacteria. Now, part of that story, an important part of that story, is the reality of natural selection. So I say all that to indicate to you natural selection is a real process. It's part of our biological knowledge. The question is, can it actually do the work of building those complicated body plans, as Dawkins claimed. But here's the logic of the theory. And it's really kind of beautiful and elegant when you unpack it. It's a conditional. So it starts with the word if. If the following conditions are satisfied, natural selection will occur. So there are three of them, three conditions to keep in mind. The first one is variation. You've got to have differences in some species. So you look around this room. And there's a tremendous amount of differences, hair color, eye color, height, body mass, you name it. Human beings vary a lot. All right, so there's some tigers. <laughs> that poor guy on the left is like, am I really a tiger, man? I, <laughs> I got shortchanged in the stripe department. Here's some stickleback fishes from a population in the United Kingdom, and you'll see the stickles on this critter are significantly larger than the other ones, but they're all in the same population. So these are minor differences that may make a difference to the number of offspring that you leave. We'll come to that in a moment. Here are some ladybugs and so forth. And of course, within Homo sapiens, as I indicated, we have a tremendous range of variation of differences. Okay, so that's the first condition. You've got to have these differences. The second condition is those differences need to affect your reproductive output so that some trait that you possess makes you more competitive in the struggle for existence, so to speak, and you end up having more kids. Now, if your kids carry that same trait, 
and the, the same you know, conditions apply, they'll end up having more kids, and you'll shift the population as a whole over time. So here's a little cartoon showing you how this works. In a single-celled, let's say this is something like yeast, single-celled eukaryote, cell with a nucleus. And we've got an orange trait and a yellow trait. Okay, let's introduce a selective condition. Maybe it's a poison or we raise the heat in the environment. That black bar represents the selective condition. Under that scenario, the yellow trait is favored. And if we keep that selective condition there, it turns out all the cells go yellow and the orange trait disappears. What's happening is that population is shifting through time in a direction changing its trait frequencies so that the yellow trait comes to dominate. That's natural selection in action, in simple cartoon form anyway, and we have lots of examples of it. So the last condition is heredity. You've got to be able to pass your variations on to the next generation. Now this last condition will turn out to be the really critical one for the problem of the origin of body plans. Because if you can't pass on the variations you need to change a body plan, you can't evolve it. We'll come back to that, but I want you to keep it in mind. All of these have to be satisfied, and if one of them is not, in particular if this condition here of transmission of the variations isn't satisfied, evolution by natural selection can't happen. But if all three of these are there, it will occur, necessarily, bound to happen. All right, so that's a real process, and the question is, can it do what Dawkins says? All right, so just to keep these in mind, think of them like three legs of a stool. Necessary and sufficient. You've got to have them all in order for selection to operate. There's a handy mnemonic to keep in front of you, but remember this principle because it will be important later. If you can't pass on your genes to the next generation, you can't pass on your variations, as far as natural selection is concerned, you're a dead end. So here's an example that I've given previously that sort of pokes fun at me. Imagine you have a person with the physique of Michael Phelps, the swimmer Michael Phelps, you know, the Olympic gold medalist. And that same guy has the brain of Stephen Hawking. So Mensa, you know, 160 IQ, absolutely brilliant. Great body, great brain, put those together in the same person. That, of course, rarely happens, but put that together in the same person. One problem, he's sterile. His testicles are not producing any functional sperm. He goes to the doctor. The doctor says, I'm sorry, you're going to have to adopt. You can't have kids. As far as natural selection is concerned, it does not matter what's right with that guy. Looks great, really smart, but he's sterile. Whereas on March 16, 1992, at Beth Israel Hospital in Boston, my wife and I, of course she did all the work, I was a minor contributor, <laughs> passed on genetic information to the next generation when my daughter Hannah was born. I do not have the physique of Michael Phelps. I do not have the brain of Stephen Hawking, but as far as evolution is concerned, I'm more fit. I'm more of a competitor than my hypothetical swimmer because I actually have kids. I have two daughters, 19 and 21. So if you're feeling bad about yourself, right, but you've got kids, you're a fit competitor in the evolutionary race. Just keep that in mind. <laughs> we'll come back to that point. All right. I think highly of Richard Dawkins. I think he's very honest as an atheist, and I think he, does a, he works hard to defend his worldview, but he says things that aren't true. And this claim is actually not true. Professionally, I evaluate the biological literature all the time. I go to the journals, read the articles. In fact, at Discovery Institute, where I'm a fellow, they call me the sponge 
which is the lowest form of animal life. <laughs> it's got you know, four or five cell types, just an undifferentiated mass kind of sitting there in the water. But I absorb a lot of information. So I read the journals all the time. This claim sounds good, but if you look in the biological literature for the explanation for, let's say, the origin of the brain or the origin of the digestive system, rendered in terms of natural selection, it's not there. And it's spectacularly not there. In case after case after case where you want, if you're a curious person, you want to see the details of how natural selection did all this complexity building work, you can't find it. That bothers me because, you know what, this has been known for a long time in evolutionary theory, many decades. So, for instance, in the mid-1960s, Conrad Waddington, the man on this slide, is a scientist in the United Kingdom, an embryologist. He worked with the core group of evolutionary theory at that time. And at a famous conference in Philadelphia, he said, we don't really know how evolution works. As he put it, the whole real guts of evolution how you come to have horses and tigers and things is outside the mathematical theory. Now what he means by that is the expression of the basic rules of genetics in evolutionary theory that was worked out in the 20th century in great detail. A very precise mathematical theory, but you take that theory and you try to say, how do I get a horse? How do I get a tiger? How do I get a fruit fly? How do I get a worm? It doesn't tell you. So this problem has been known for a long time, that natural selection doesn't actually explain where these different body plans came from. Or these. You know, here in Hawaii, you have an amazing diversity of marine life that you don't see in Chicago. You go to Lake Michigan, it's basically carp and more carp. <laughs> carp, as you know, tolerate very low levels of oxygen in, in the water. I mean, I'm exaggerating. You can find salmon and other things in, in uh, Lake Michigan, but we don't have all the amazing marine life that you do here in Hawaii. But when my older daughter, who's now studying marine biology, she's working in Panama at a Smithsonian field station this summer, when she was a little girl, we would go to Laguna Beach in Southern California, and she would walk out in a tidal pool, and she could identify, let's say, a lobster, and distinguish that from a sand dollar because they just don't have the same basic architecture. These are differences that we come to recognize very early on as, as just kids. And, and evolution needs to explain how these differences came to be. If it tells you, well, I can, you know, the theory personified as a person, you know, the theory says, well, I can tell you why there's slightly more pigment in your skin than that person. Well, that's interesting, but I want to know where did the person come from? So we're actually in this group here, the chordates, who would ever think to put an octopus and a snail together? But there they are. They're in that same group, the mollusca. I want to know, how did those differences come to be? Well, according to evolution, they arose originally from a rather undifferentiated, simple organism. Come to have a name, I'll explain it in a moment, called Urbilateria. This was the original progenitor of all the animals. And then in the Cambrian explosion... These very different groups somehow evolved from that common ancestor. Now, this drawing represents a hypothetical construct. There's no actual fossil evidence for Urbilateria. The name Ur means original, the prefix, and Bilateria means bilaterally symmetrical. So if you put a, you know, like a yardstick down the middle of me and looked on the left and looked on the right, 
in terms of my exterior anatomy, certainly I'm symmetrical. I've got an arm over here, an arm over here, an eye, an eye, and so forth. And it's a little bit hard to see in this cartoon or in this slide, but these forms are all bilaterally symmetrical. Although, as I said, the, drawing doesn't, the, the drawings here don't quite indicate that. So this is thought to be the original organism with that mirror symmetry on both sides. And there are two ways of representing it here. One's like a little, looks like a little inflatable, inflated balloon there. And this, this version has more details. There's eyes and a gut and some antennae and so forth. Again, there's no actual fossil evidence for that. The reason that that form is there on the slide is evolution needs some ancestor for the animals, some way to pull them all together into Darwin's tree. So that's what's postulated to be the common form. Now, you could look at that slide and say, well, I could imagine that original sort of schmoo, you know, that we're bilateria maybe turning into a more complicated creature. But I want to know, step by step, how did it happen? Well, actually, again, evolutionary biologists have known for a long time that that is unanswered. That question has not been answered. So in the late 80s, I actually met this biologist. He works in the United Kingdom, but he came to the University of Chicago, where I was a student, graduate student, to do a sabbatical. And at that time, in the late 80s, he was becoming increasingly unhappy with evolutionary theory, textbook theory. So in this publication, he says, look, we don't really know how body plans originate. And he said, the examples we have in our textbooks don't work. So this is an example that may be familiar to you, textbook example from high school or college biology. In England, during the Industrial Revolution, a lot of pollution was pumped out by factories, burning coal, and that pollution darkened the landscape. It descended on trees, it descended on walls and surfaces, and made the, the landscape dark with coal dust or soot. These moths come in a variety of forms, morphs they're called, with different degrees of pigment in their wings, in their bodies. So you can see that as the landscape becomes darker, these light-colored moths will stand out against the dark background, whereas the dark-colored moths are much better camouflaged. Well, you're a bird flying along, you're a hungry bird flying along, you see that guy right there, it's like, okay, that's lunch. Let that happen generation after generation with the light-colored moths being eaten, and you know what will happen. The population as a whole will shift towards the dark end of the pigment spectrum. All right, what happened then in England when they cleaned up their pollution? Surfaces became lighter, and the population shifted back towards the light end of the spectrum. Now, that's another example of natural selection in action. These moths are in the same species, but, of course, they have different amounts of pigment, and what happens is you get this shift over time in the population. Now, what Arthur is saying is, yeah, that happens, but that doesn't explain where the moth itself came from, which is really what we want evolution to tell us. Where did the moth itself come from? It's an important question to answer how the population shifted, sure, but we've left untouched the really important question, which is, where do moths and birds and whales come from? Now, I said there'd be some biological detail here. The next few slides are a little technical, but I'll try to make them accessible to you. Where did the problem arise? Well, you can go back in evolutionary theory into the 20th century, into the 1930s, to an, a hypothesis that was made by people like this man here, 
Theodosius Dubzhansky. He was a very influential geneticist at Columbia University who actually trained one of my mentors at the University of Chicago. So I sort of stand in an intellectual lineage going back to Dubzhansky. And in his major work in 1937, he said, if we want to understand macroevolution, that is these big changes over long spans of time, we have a problem because we can't see long spans of time. We don't have access to them. So what are we going to do? How are we going to solve the problem? He said, what we take are the little chunks of time that we do have, a few generations here, a few generations there, and we extrapolate those out to what we can see on the assumption that the evolution that we're able to observe is going to explain the evolution we can't observe. So to use sort of more conventional terms, the argument is micro or small-scale evolution over time extrapolates to large-scale evolution. But he knew this might be false. This concludes part one of Dr. Paul Nelson's message of Could Evolution Build the Animals? If you would like to hear this message in its entirety, along with all of the other seminars from this past year's Hawaii Apologetics Conference, log on at evidenceandanswers.org. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by this show, please support Pat in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. Join us again next week as Pat and his friends continue to present reasons for hope and faith in Christ. Join us here next week or on the web for more evidence and answers.